All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Supplemental Episode 5 of Chapter 1, another interview with a founding Mosaic and Netscape engineer. You actually might know Rob McCool uh, from his work on the NCSA HTTPD web server, later known as the Apache server, so you can think of him as the godfather of Apache. But he was also a founding member of both Mosaic and Netscape, where he contributed um, a lot of work to the server side of the equation. So Rob's going to tell us a lot about that. This is probably the last interview we'll do for a little while. Um, The 20th anniversary of Netscape's founding was, or is, depending on when you're listening to this, April 4th. So I've been rushing to get these interviews out before then. So now, let's go to Rob McCool. So, Rob McCool, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Sure. Good to be here. Uh, To get started, uh, tell us uh, where you grew up. So I grew up in one of the suburbs of Chicago. It's called Westchester. It's kind of a interesting little town. It's uh, next to Oak Brook, which is where the McDonald's headquarters is. So it's uh, kind of a little blue-collar cousin to Oak Brook. So that, that is pretty logical. You'd end up at the University of Illinois? Yeah, I mean, we went. Uh, I went to a, a high school that was a, a school that was run by the state called uh, Illinois Math and Science Academy. And uh, we got early exposure to the internet there, and that was kind of where I started looking at some of, the, you know, basically got early access to the internet and uh, things like that. And a lot of IMSA people went to U of I because, uh, um, you know, it was reasonably, you know, it was kind of an, an interesting next step. So I, I applied only to U of I, and I didn't really want to go anywhere else. Are you working at the NCSA then as an undergrad or, or as a grad student? I was a I was an undergrad. So um, in our senior year of high school, a buddy of mine, Dan Pape, uh, he goes, "Yeah, you know, I'm uh, I'm gonna apply to work at this supercomputer center." And I was like, "Dude, you're nuts!" And 
He was like, no, no, really, you know, we, we should apply and just, you know, just send him a letter, you know, send him something that says you want to work there. And I was like, okay, fine, I didn't expect anything to come of it. Um, so I did, I sent a letter, I think it went, I think we sent it to Larry Smarr, <clears throat> who was in charge of the place. Um, and, you know, he got back to me and he said, hey, come in on this day. And I, I came in on that day and uh, there was, uh, God, I forget his name, no, I think his name was Tim. Um, he's sitting by a Mac and we're talking and he's like, so what kind of experience do you have? And I'm like, derp, derp, we had a Sun 4280, you know, at, at IMSA and it was nice. I learned how to do some Unix stuff. He's like, great, you know how to do Unix command line stuff? I was like, mostly. He was like, ever been a system administrator? I was like, no. And he's like, great, you're a system administrator now. And so <laughs> I got a part-time job making, you know, probably five or six bucks an hour um, at the supercomputer center in what was called the software development group. Um, and they were famous primarily for NCSA Telnet. Mm -hmm. There's a, an interview from Smar from 1999 that was relatively infamous among a lot of the, the Netscape founders because it had suggested that Dave Thompson was the one who discovered the World Wide Web when he wasn't. But there were more important things in that interview, like the fact that what Smar was trying to do with the Supercomputer Center and what he was trying to do with NCSA Telnet and why that specific software group existed. So. Um, you know, I felt like I was pretty lucky to have had my friend say, hey, you should go try to work for this place, even though it's just insane for, you know, a freshman with no experience to just drop a letter to these guys and say, hey, you know, can I come work with you? And yeah, there we are, you know. Are, are you working on server stuff before the Mosaic project or did that grow out of the Mosaic project? No, that grew out of the Mosaic project. I was a, I was a system administrator, so my job was to make backups of data and code that was being written by the researchers to work with scientists. So there were a couple of different uh, projects in that area. Uh, the three that I remember, although there were several more, well there were four, but I'm, uh, anyway, so uh, there was a system called HGF, which was a hierarchical data format that was used by a lot of scientists to store the data they were getting out of these supercomputer simulations. Uh, there was Telnet, there was, uh, um, there was Collabora, which was a collaborative system, basically doing the kind of stuff we're doing now, except in 1992, which was kind of revolutionary at the time. Um, and then there was a, a visualization package whose name escapes me um, that Mark was working on. And he came in like a little bit after I did, after an internship. So I was a system man, and I was basically running backups, and that was my job. Like I was, you know, supposed to. Um, keep the machines running and do whatever sysadmin type stuff had to happen if someone needed a file restored or if there was some new configuration to do or you know we had to install more memory in a workstation or something. Um, and Mark, Mark, Mark had come in and um, you know my my impression of him early was that uh, he was interesting mainly because coming from you know a you know a not very sophisticated area of Chicago all of the nerds I'd come across were all quiet you know kind of nerdy types and you know here's this gigantic Scandinavian guy with a purple computer and he's wild-eyed and telling me about all this stuff that's going to be great and one of the things that he had done was uh, their visualization tool that he was working on kept crashing in the free call you know there's malloc and there's free and kept on crashing and free so his solution was just not call free and I was like dude really can you do that And he's like eh, well you know, my boss hasn't noticed yet. Um, you know, so so he he finds this World Wide Web thing, and he's like, look, you know, this has to be really easy. It has to be really easy for everyone to use, right? And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. 
Um, he was like, but the, the server that 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 backs this thing is like 20,000 lines of code, and that's like, you know, that's an order of magnitude more than it should be. So let's let's rewrite it. And I was like, oh well, okay. So I picked up a copy of Unix Network Programming, the Stevens book, which most people considered at the time, even today, the the Bible of writing servers. Um, and I just banged something out. It was like 2,000 lines of code, you know. So we we put something together, and that was. Uh, um, I think Mark's idea was a good one that, you know, it was pretty sound that, you know, hey, you need something small and something simple and something people can do something with. The the server that you're replacing is the original Berners-Lee yeah. web server, yeah. right? It was called CERN HTTPD, so we just called ours NCSA HTTPD. Um, and, yeah, the original Berners-Lee server had a lot more functionality in it um, because he had originally envisioned that the servers themselves wouldn't just serve documents, they would also serve as this kind of uh, web of proxies. Um, and so it, the server itself had all kinds of code in it for doing like FTP retrievals and accessing news feeds and accessing Gopher. Um, you know, it was interesting when Mark started describing the World Wide Web because I was like, dude, why do we need that? You know, HTTP, well, we've got Gopher, we've got FTP, what do we need another file protocol for? Um, you know, so I, I was kind of skeptical, but I, you know, I, it was, I had a lot of free time in between, in between running backups and, you know, that kind of thing. So I was like, okay, sure, I'll work on it, you know. So NCSA HTTPD is released sort of as a, a companion to, to when Mosaic comes out, correct? You're, yeah, you're, giving, so, you're giving both sides of the tool there. Yeah, yeah. So, so Mark's idea was that it should be easy for people to publish and it should be easy for people to consume. Um, so HTTPD was the published side of that. You know, it allowed people to, um, you know, make their files available. And so, you know, I remember that one of the cooler early ones was NASA. You know, like today you kind of take it for granted that Wikipedia is there and, of course, NASA is on the Internet. But at the time, that was a big deal that you could actually see pictures of the space shuttle rendered in a web browser because up until then, pictures were not really something you saw on computers. I mean, like EGA, CGA graphics were really horrible for pictures, and it wasn't until... You know, like the Mac 2 came along with the really high-definition display, and the CPUs got fast enough to render pictures without, you know, you sitting there for 30 seconds waiting for it to pick up. So that the HTTPD was the side that let let NASA publish pictures of the space shuttle, or let um, you know other places put their menus online or put news online, things like that. And uh, HTTPD uh, is sort of the progenitor to what became Apache, correct? Yeah, so um, I get I get that a lot. Yeah, Apache was born primarily out of my neglect, so I'm famous for something that I abandoned. <laughs> um, so the the deal was that HTTPD was my first network server, and I made some mistakes in it. And I wouldn't just say some mistakes; I would say some catastrophic mistakes. But it was flexible and it was usable. And at the time, the internet was generally kind of a nice place. There wasn't as much hacking activity on there as there is now. And um, when I when I left NCSA, I had put I had released the 1.3 version of the server, and I was preparing another version. Especially when, you know, uh, the real progenitors of the Apache project, like Brian Bellendorf, um, they were basically taking taking HTTPD and reporting a lot of bugs, like basically saying, "Hey, look, this sucks," and "Hey, there's all these security holes," and um, "There's these other things that don't make any sense and should get fixed." And I was at Netscape at the time, which was called Mosaic Communications because we hadn't been forced to change the name yet. Um, 
And I was like, okay, well, you know, there's all these problems in HTTP, and I've got to fix them. And they were like, no, you're not going to go fix them. And I was like, well, why wouldn't I? It's, you know, my responsibility is my fault. These things got to get fixed. And they're like, no, you can't touch that software. Um, you know, you're working on our server now, and we're going to serve, we're going to sell a, a server, and you know, you can't work on that old one. So I had to abandon it. And so Apache was born because. All of these people had all these patches floating around for HTTP that fixed all these problems that I wanted to fix, but I wasn't allowed to. Um, and so those guys eventually said, well, hey, why don't we get together and combine our efforts, and that became Apache. Well, uh, backing up for just a second, um, do you walk me through um, getting recruited to, to go out and do Netscape? You're, uh, Mark has gone off to California and then you guys get word that he's coming back with Jim Clark and, and there's a mysterious project that he wants you to be a part of? Yeah, um, basically, so Mark, so Mark started out on Polyviz, which is that project I told you about, but he discovers the World Wide Web somehow, to be honest, I don't even know where he heard about it from. Um, he gets us all kind of ramped up about it and we start building stuff and uh, he graduates because he was a year ahead of me. He had actually, he had gone to school and then he had gone off to IBM for an internship and so he graduates in our, a year early and he comes out here to California he goes to a place called EIT which I think was Enterprise Integration Technologies Technology, yeah. yeah he's just bored stupid there he just like he can't stand it um, and so somehow he and Jim Clark got together and Jim was like well why don't we do the internet you know and um, Jim had been, I don't know if he was dissatisfied with SGI and left or if he was kind of pushed out or something, but he was really unhappy with how things had gone in SGI and he wanted to make his own company and he wanted to do it right this time, even though he'd done it again, he'd done it before with SGI, but it was his first company and so he really made a lot of mistakes and he felt like he wanted to kind of do it again. So he grabs Mark and they, they send us a note and yeah, it was, you know, something like, uh, you know, hey, we've got a new project we want to talk about. And so they get us together at this. Um, I think it was a bar. I don't even remember what it was called. I think it was called University Inn. Honestly, I was a nerd in college. I'm a nerd now, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't really get out to bars and things. So, so we go out to this place, and uh, you know, they're basically like, "Yeah, let's let's do Mosaic, except let's make a company out of it." You know, and so I was going to be the server guy, and the other guys were going to be the browser team. And um, you know, at the time, it was a, a crazy idea to build this software but just give it away. I mean, you know, that was crazy for us at the time, although eventually it became the, I mean, the, the, the fact that we couldn't figure out what kind of company we were was what killed the company. Um, but they were going to give away the browser and charge a lot of money for the server. And, um, you know, he, they, he talks to us all together downstairs and then he has what, I, if you've talked to Lou already, he probably talked about his Jedi mind trick speech where, you know, he brings us all upstairs and we all come down saying, yes, we're going to make a company. It'll be great. Um, you know, so, but yeah, I mean, he basically gives me a letter with a salary and a number of stock options, and I didn't even know what stock was at that point, but I knew that the salary was enormous. And so, you know, so yeah, I went home and I talked to my parents about it, and they're like, well, we're not sure about this, but sure, why not? So, um, I had an odd situation because I was actually still in my junior year at, at college, so I needed to work full-time for Netscape for a year while I was still going to classes. Um, how, did you, yeah. how did you work that out? So I, um, at the time, broadband wasn't really a thing, and so uh, we got an ISDN. So I came, out, I came out to California for the summer, and I started work on the server, and 
you know, it was a little disconcerting because here's this team of like 10, 15 people who are working on something we're giving away, and here's like one guy working on something we're going to, you know, sell for $5,000 a copy. Um, I had support guys too. I mean, I had that uh, there was a guy doing the encryption library, and there's some some other random pieces that were building being built by other people. But you know, it was a little scary because it was just me, and you know, I was making this thing that's worth so much money. You know, and it's like it was a new experience. So I came out here for the summer, and then I went back to in the fall. I needed to finish my degree because my parents were like, you know, it's fine if you want to, you know, run off on this crusade like this, but you're going to finish your degree. Um, you know, so. Broadband, DSL, all of that stuff didn't really exist back then, but there was a tech called ISDN, which was dual channel and it ran into blazing 128 kbps. And so um, the other thing that happened was my brother had been working at NCSA, working on the Mac version of Telnet, and so we. Right, I, 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 sorry, I neglected to mention that your your brother worked um, uh, with Alex on on the Mac port of of Mosaic. Yeah, yeah. So we decided to hire him too, and so. He and I were still on our senior year, and so we were in the same apartment together, and so we had an ISDN line, and so we were, worked remotely, um, which was, you know, a, a huge, huge deal at the time, and it was kind of unheard of um, back in, you know, 1994. Um, it worked out okay. The one, the one hiccup was that at one point, for, somehow the ISDN line had been registered in our own personal names, and so sometime in December, after we'd been using the line for two months. You know, my brother gets a bill for $12,000 and in his name, you know, here you go, personally liable for this, you know, by the way, due to two weeks from now. So, you know, <laughs> you know, here he is like holding a bill for how much most cars cost in those days, you know. Right. So uh, the the server that you're working on, which I guess uh, becomes the, the Netscape Enterprise server. Um, yeah. So you, you get to you get to do it do it right this time, I'm assuming. Uh, it was a clean slate, yes. In fact, we were, I mean, I, I don't know how much they, they talked about it, but we were sued by the U of I for, for uh, IP infringement. Um, and so they actually audited at the server. And yeah, they, they only found one piece that I had used that was contributed by a guy in Hawaii that I thought was fine to use. And so it was a ground-up rewrite of the whole thing. And it was, you know, done right this time. I mean, memory management was done right. It was done... Um, in a very high performance way, we got a lot of QPS out of all the servers we had. We had, uh, it's funny, our first servers were actually these rejected prototype builds from SGI that's, that Jim had gotten through some back channels. So, um, you know, on the negative side, they were kind of just weird hardware. I mean, they would do really spooky things sometimes. But on the plus side, we had complete access to SGI's kernel team. So, I mean, they were able, like, there were all kinds of problems in the networking and virtual memory subsystems that we found, and we were able to get just, you know, first-class access to those guys and, you know, get it all fixed. So, yeah, the, this server was kind of targeted toward the high end. I mean, it, it was called Enterprise Server later. Um, I don't remember. I think initially it was the Netscape Communications Server for the unencrypted one and the Commerce Server for the encrypted one. Um, but it was basically a way for people to get online and have something where they could have support for it, and it was high performance and it was reliable, um, you know. But it still supported a lot of the features that uh, the old NCSA server did. But uh, you're you're starting to add things now, like SSL and things like that, for to to make the commerce server possible and stuff like that. Yeah, the encryption was a big deal. I mean, we had uh, put out an experiment for encryption pretty early on, actually, in. Uh, I think that was in the summer of 93. I don't remember exactly what year it was, but uh, I took the, uh, what's his name? I think his name is Paul Zimmerman. 
uh, did a PGP library at the time. Uh, there was a program that would do encryption with public key and private key, and so we actually bolted that onto Mosaic browser and the NCSA HTTPD. Uh, but we we did that kind of a, that was done in kind of a hacky way, and then the, at Netscape we kind of did it right, where we had one guy who um, designed the protocol to SSL. And that was Kip Hickman. I don't know if you've talked to him, but he may be interesting to catch up with. Um, but you know, they, they, we basically did transport level encryption, and we got a lot of things wrong, but we got a lot of things right, and so it basically worked for people, and you know, that enabled the commerce server. Um, and then over time, we started adding features to the to the server that were more enterprise oriented. So we added like work group stuff. We bought this company. I think their name was Calabra. Mm -hmm. um, we got a bunch of guys from there, and so we started adding a bunch of messaging like features and expanding. They eventually expanded out the server line to something they called SweetSpot. Um, and that was a bunch of different types of servers. So, I mean, there was like a new server and an, a mail server, and uh, they also had a couple of weird ones, like a catalog server and a directory server. Can you talk a little bit about what the what the culture was like at, at Netscape? I mean, you've, you've worked at startups, you've worked at Yahoo, online, uh, on live, uh, Google, you're at Google now. How, how does the, how did the culture of Netscape compare to, you know, other startups or companies that you've worked for? Um, so Netscape definitely had a bit of an odd culture, um, early on. So it grew initially by having a bunch of adult supervision from SGI and a bunch of, you know, wild kids from U of I. Um, and uh, we had a situation sort of like that at OnLive too, and I think that's actually a pretty good combination because you get a bunch of kids who you can steer in the right direction, and then you get a bunch of adult supervision to make sure that they're going in the right direction. But mm -hmm. um, Netscape always had a very high passion, very um, open, confrontational, but passionate culture about it. Um, you know, like I would characterize. Um, Microsoft as being more of a bullying culture, and I would characterize Yahoo as a everybody's nice but not everybody's effective kind of a culture. Um, and I, I would characterize Google as being, you know, kind of a monoculture of introverted nerds, and so you get a lot of non-confrontational behavior. Um, startups I've been at are much closer to what I think we had at Netscape. Netscape did have a lot of flaws, though. I mean, we had a lot of passion, and we had a lot of fights, but we also had a lot of bad decision making and we also were excessive in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, on the whole, I think it was, it was a great experience and I was really fortunate to have, especially those SGI guys who were Valley veterans and, you know, Silicon Valley is a bit of a different place compared to the rest of the world in terms of how work, the workforce works and how people view work and things like that. And I had some of the most experienced people in the Valley helping me with that and kind of, showing me the ropes and showing me what was the right priority and what was not the right priority. And so I was really thankful for that. Um, were you the one that brought in the, the remote control cars and stuff? My recollection is that it was Lou who started that, okay. but I was certainly considered one of the poster children for that particular uh, hobby. I, uh, basically all the guys have you know talked about it's 20 years on, we can't imagine you know, working as hard as we did, but, you know, and then also, you guys were fresh out of college, you were college kids, so there was, 
it was easy to, to work 120 hour weeks back then, I guess. It, it really was. We had nothing else to, to do. I mean, here we had all transplanted out from Chicago, you know, Illinois, from Illinois. I don't, I don't know how many others were from Chicago, but um, we had all come out to California. We knew nobody. And all, all we knew is that we had to make this thing succeed. And we were getting, I, I was getting more money than I'd ever seen at that point. Um, you know, because they were very fair with compensation, at least from among the initial team. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, here we are with a lot of time and a lot of disposable income. And, you know, so sure, we, we started doing a lot of this kind of stuff. And, you know, the cars were one. Um, I didn't get caught up in it, but there was a huge movement to play multiplayer Doom that I don't know if anybody else talked about. But uh, it got to the point where they started having to threaten disciplinary action and, you know, making policies of no gaming before 5 p.m. and that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so Netscape was definitely kind of the prototype for the the work hard, play hard kind of mentality. You see that at Google, actually. They're trying to back off from it now, but, it, you know, Google kind of took that to the next level, especially in the early days. Um, you know, when they, they kind of pioneered the whole, well, we'll serve you food at work so you don't have to leave, you know, and... You know, we'll put foosball tables everywhere and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but you have to remember that Netscape was one of the first to really do that. I mean, like, I I remember, like, people were noting that it was really weird to them that I was showing up to work in sweatpants all the time. And, um, you know, because even though the Valley had always been kind of, you know, loose collar by most standards, uh, that was unusual. That was like, wow, I, was, you know, I don't know about that, you know. Um, and that that whole like kind of hacker culture had always been kind of around in the valley but Netscape was one of the first I think to kind of legitimize it and that kind of set the template for the dot-com boom which um, entertainingly I had an intern at my last company he was 18 years old and a buddy and I are talking about the dot-com boom and he turns to us and goes what's a dot-com boom and we're like dude you're in computer science how do you not know this and he's like but I was 13 you know the exact reason I started this project is because I kept you know, going to tech meetups and stuff, and and the, the the kids that are coming there now, when they would find out that I start, I did my first company during the dot com days, they'd say, "Oh, tell me about that." I'm like, "What are you What are you talking about? Yeah. That was just yesterday." Yeah, no, seriously, it's you know, it's interesting. And later, I I will say that it was a surprise to me that that there was a boom and a bust that way, but. Uh, you know, somebody had actually, one of the guys at U of I actually told me, he was one of the more adult supervision types over at NCSA, he said, look, you know, the uh, computing goes in cycles, you know, and his example was actually the mainframes or centralized computing versus dumb terminals, so like the personal computer versus the dumb terminal. He said, look, it's going to go in cycles forever, that basically they're, you know, they'll start centralizing everything into the cloud, and then people will get annoyed with that, and they'll bring it all back to you know, the handheld devices or the, the personal computers, and it'll just keep breathing. And, you know, one thing I started to realize is that California's weather is based on this boom and bust cycle. The gold rush was started, and so even technology runs on this kind of boom and bust cycle out here. And, you know, like once you get used to it, it's, uh, um, you kind of get to understand what to expect, you know, droughts versus floods and that kind of stuff. Um, but it was, it was really kind of a shock coming from, you know, the Midwest where, you know, it, it's it's much more of a conservative sort of a culture. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only fourteen ninety five. 
BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of the, the dot-com era, no one seems to have any specific memories of, of the actual IPO day or period or anything like that. Do you have any memories of that? I remember the all hands when they said we were going to do that. And I thought it was nuts. I was like, you're kidding me. We're going public now based on what? Um, you know, and I, I remember, you know, I, I remember the, the, the lead up to it because, um, you know, they, they announced we were going to go IPO. Um, they got a bunch of financial advisors in, and that was actually really smart of them to do that. They basically made sure that all of us didn't become, you know, MC Hammer or whatever, you know, going and blowing a bunch of money on things. And so, um, you know, they got proper investment advisors in. And um, the only I remember Netscape used to have some pretty big parties. In fact, they're having a reunion now. And a lot of the reason why people are not all that thrilled about it is that they're still kind of going for that old Netscape uh, party big, party hard, party expensive kind of uh, uh, mentality. Um, so I remember a lot of parties around the IPO and, you know, now I, I look back and I'm like, wow, that was nuts. We really, you know, we really went out of hand on that. Um, but uh, I, I do remember the, the day it went IPO and it just started shooting up. And at the time that was unprecedented. I mean, that was just like, wow, not only does this company going IPO way before anyone else has, but they don't have any revenue, and somehow people are still buying it. Um, you know, I remember we were, there were these breathless news stories about like, oh, the new economy and all this kind of stuff. And to be fair, in retrospect, I think a lot of the things that people said back then eventually came tr- true. I mean, you know, I'm working at a company right now that's completely based on clicks. I mean, you know, at the time, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, that that was actually what killed Netscape, is that we were revolutionary and different for a software company, but at the end, we thought of ourselves as a software company. And that, more than Microsoft, is what killed us. That, you know, I I walked around the halls of Yahoo, and I remember one day looking around realizing, hey, you know, they use the same type of offices, they use the same kind of cubicle equipment, they use everything, but they're still here and we're not. Why is that? And, you know, the reason was that they were more flexible to what eventually became the new rules of software that, you know, you can't just package something up in shrink wrap and charge $10,000 for it and that's the model. Um, you know, that you have to do more incremental things and you have to be able to, you know, charge people in new and innovative ways. And, um, you know, so at the time at the IPO, there was a lot of this kind of talk and I remember sitting there thinking it was complete nonsense, but, you know, that's, I'm an engineer, I, I tend to be more you know, conservative about that kind of stuff. Right. Well, um, but talk about that a, a little bit more. Um, in retrospect, you're saying that it, it, in a way, Netscape never stopped thinking of itself as a company that sold shrink wrap software. Um, yes, and that was the problem. They had kind of a last ditch effort. They brought in a guy named Mike Homer. Um, and it was basically a realization that, hey, Yahoo has made tons of money just based on having a web page, and here we are with the, 
market the lion's share of the market of a web browser with captive audience who probably won't change their homepage unless they're really sophisticated and yet we're doing nothing with this you know we're not putting any ads on that we're not keeping them we're not saying, telling them where to go um, and there was kind of a, a, a sudden like kind of an OS moment kind of a thing where they're just like oh my god we have to we have to fix this and so they tried but it was too little too late and poorly executed I think and uh, John Middlehauser pointed out that you know Yahoo basically incubated in inside Netscape for a oh, time. Oh yeah, yeah, we were we were giving them servers. I mean, I remember I had a lot of tech support for them where they were discovering issues, and we were going and figuring it out. Uh, there was a guy named Bill Foss um, who ran a lot of things for them. The only other thing I remember was he ran Playboy, and that was like kind of a controversial thing internally. Um, you know, but yeah, they were. He was running Yahoo servers, and yeah, they basically incubated inside Netscape, and they're still here. And you know, we're not. So, <laughs> um, I wanted to actually skip ahead a bit and just ask you a bit about what you're doing now. Like you've said, you you you've been with Yahoo on Live, um, and now with Google, you're 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 working on semantic web stuff. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing right now. So yeah, I, I work in the core search team. So um, I actually work on search infrastructure, and so um, you know we uh, we basically power what are called one boxes and knowledge panels. So um, you know we we do a lot of work, and it's a big team. I I, I contribute some pieces of it, but you know I, by no means am I in charge of any of these things. But uh, we contribute work to like if you type in a query like Tom Hanks or Tom Hanks birthday, there's a, a panel that appears on the right, and that uh, that'll give you information about Tom Hanks. And you can ask things like how tall is Barack Obama, and you get a box underneath the search box that tells you he's you know six one or whatever. Um, you can ask for sports scores and flight stats and weather. And so uh, there's infrastructure that I contribute to that runs all of those things. Um, you know, and so we're basically just, you know, trying to push forward with new ways to discover information and trying to push, because Berners-Lee had originally had the semantic web vision, and that was like, what, 13 years ago now? Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're really trying to push a lot of that to reality because, um, you know, mobile makes it so that, you know, if you can just ask your phone a question and it can give you the answer, it's a very powerful experience. And so we're, we're trying to drive that forward. Right, and just to define for people in a, in a general way, that that's what semantic search is, is sort of all about. Instead of keyword searching, you can ask natural language questions and, and get natural language answers. Yeah, so it's concepts rather than, than a bag of words. So, you know, like the one of the canonical examples is like the word jaguar could refer to a cat or it could refer to a car brand. Um, you know, Apple could be a fruit or a computer brand. So... Um, if it's just a bag of words, it's difficult for the computer to tell which one you're talking about. But if it's a semantic concept, then it can tell the difference, and it can understand that there's more than one way to interpret that phrase. Uh, well, I'm gonna begin to wrap it up here. I, it's I've been asking everybody. It's it's 20 years on. Does it feel like 20 years, or does it feel like yesterday to you? Um, I have a 10-year-old, so it does feel like 20 years to me. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, the 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 stuff that happened then is it, it is it, it is history um, to me. I mean, it's you know, it, it was a great ride, and I was really fortunate to be a part of it. Um, you know, but I've also I I, I had some great experiences after that too. You know, I mean, um, OnLive didn't end very nicely, but it was a hell of a ride while it was going. 
Um, you know, and I enjoyed my time at Yahoo too. I mean, Yahoo had a lot of great people and, uh, you know, Google's Google. I mean, you, anybody who works at Google will start spouting, you know, amazing things about it. So I'm not going to, um, do too much of that, but, uh, you know, the, the Valley's great. So I've been having a great time. So, you know, it does feel like 20 years. I mean, I'm sad sometimes that it didn't continue, um, because I, I felt like we really had a good team and a good thing going there, but uh, you know, it just wasn't meant to be. And when you look at the the web and just the internet in general, um, is it has it become what you imagined it would be 20 years ago? Is it not not there yet? Is it more than you could have imagined at this point? Well, it's it's more. I, I I remember when I was driving somewhere in 1994. I was driving from Illinois to here, and I saw a URL on a billboard, and I was like, Oh my God, what is that doing there? Um, you know, because now it's 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 taken for granted. But back then, it was like, Wow, what is that? Why is that there? You know, like I can't believe it. You know, and. There's been a lot of things over the years that you know just astonished me. Like I worked on Yahoo Video, and the before YouTube was acquired, we're like, dude, those guys are screwed. They're they're based on piracy. There's no way this is gonna work. They're gonna get sued into oblivion. And then Google bought them, and we're like, well, okay, fine. It's gonna take a little longer, but they're still gonna get sued into oblivion. And yet here we are with like the world's greatest video on demand library ever, and it's completely free. I mean, that's just astonishing. Um, you know, there's, we live in a world now where we all carry a Cray supercomputer in our pockets. The, the, these, these phones we have now are more powerful than a Cray YMP or I think it's an XMP. I looked it up once, supercomputer. We're carrying these devices in our pockets and just kind of taking it for granted. I mean, like, you know, here we are, you're all across the country, we're on a video call. And it just works. I mean, it, it's, it, this is an astonishing world. We just, we live in the future. So it's way beyond what I could. If you'd gone back 20 years and told me this was going to happen, I'd be like, no way, man. You're reading too much science fiction. Well, that's a, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, Rob McCool, uh, congratulations on 20 years. No, thank you. And um, thank you for coming on the podcast. Great. Well, I'm glad to be here. So thanks for inviting me.